Hello everyone, just a quick message before you delve into the backlog of the After Film School Club podcast. In the first half of 2020, we went under the name of the Above the Line podcast, since that's the website where we were exclusively based for that time. Rest assured that you listen to the right podcast now when you listen to this episode, because we've rebranded and have released all our exclusive episodes for free. So, we hope you enjoy where we started off, and continue to enjoy where we're going to go in the future. Happy listening! Hello everyone, and welcome back to another two-parter on the Above the Line podcast. We had so much to say about so many great films at the Slamdance Film Festival that we've managed to cut out two whole episodes from our discussion. So when this one is done, remember to keep your eyes and ears peeled and tune in soon for the second part. Enjoy! Hello everyone, and welcome back to the Above the Line podcast, where me, your host, Simon Ramshaw, invites a guest or two onto the show to talk film production, film festivals, and generally, all things film. The focus of this episode is going to be on the Slamdance Film Festival, which celebrated an online edition this year, as is the done thing now, of course, meaning that the Utah-based festival could actually get its movies out overseas, which is obviously a great thing for a slot across the pond. I have two of my esteemed colleagues to talk through the festival with me today, and unfortunately, they're both called Jack. So for the benefit of the listeners, the northerner is Jack Davidson, who I will refer to as Mr. Davidson, and the southerner is Jack Keating, who I will refer to as Mr. Keating. How are you two Jacks doing? Very good. Thank you. Very well, thank you. (laughs) So that was Jack Davidson talking first, Jack Keating talking second just so we're on the same page. Lovely. (laughs) Um, First off, I should say that our coverage in this episode is not going to be as widespread as our epic two-part episode on the London Shorts Film Festival, because for one, we weren't as psychotically committed to watching as much as possible with this one. We have been a bit more selective, and also, I do not have the energy to edit anything of that length again for a very long time. So this one will be mercifully shorter. And yes, you're welcome, listener. Um, What were our totals for this one, guys? I'm sitting very comfortably on 14 shorts, three features, and one featurette in two days, may I add. I think I watched about 40 films um, within a day or two. Um, So I think I only watched one or two features, but the rest were all shorts of varying lengths. And I did take it right down to the wire that it was 11.57 and I had to cram in a seven minute short. So I finished it right at the, right at the deadline. (laughs) So did it, did it clock out or did it allow you to sort of run to the end? Yeah. So I got to finish the short, which was good (laughs) because I did actually end it on some good ones. I was scared that i was going to end it with some duds and like leave a sour taste but um yeah i really appreciated that it was good <laughs> well done mr davidson how about you mr keating i came in uh with a measly five short films and two features that's all right it was all right they were all pretty much all of them were great so <laughs> nice short but sweet so excellent excellent that's what we like to hear i mean you were suffering a little bit from the PTSD of uh, the London Shorts Film Festival, yeah, which I don't blame you that. about. Yeah, it, it felt like I needed at least another couple of weeks before I could go for an onslaught like that again after doing 74 films 
at London Shorts. That was just too many. <laughs> yeah, you were very committed to the bit for that one. So uh, I I appreciate the effort made. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. <laughs> um, before we start talking about our own picks, however, I'd be very remiss if I didn't give some credit to the person who told me about this festival. He's a fellow film critic and a friend of the show, Max Sargent. He sent us in a bunch of reviews of some of his favourites, so I'll let the tape roll, and you guys can have your say on the movies if you saw them too. So, here we go. Hi everyone, thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm glad I can share some thoughts on some interesting films that I saw at Slamdance Film Festival. I'll uh, start by saying it was kind of just dumb luck that I stumbled onto the festival in the first place. Uh, Someone that I follow on Letterbox logged the film 24,483 Dreams of Death by Chris Peters, which is an AI-rendered reconfiguration slash musing on the Mario Bava film Mask of Satan, and um, since seeing Chris Peters' other film, Vertigo AI, which is a rendering of Vertigo by Hitchcock, I'm a really big fan of his and want to consume as many weird and wonderful AI films as possible, so I asked where he managed to watch Dreams of Death, and that led me to Slam Darts, where I proceeded to watch as many short films as possible over two days, <laughs> including Peter's film, which is uh, really fantastic and haunting, but uh, I'm going to leave that let Simon talk about that because I assume he has a lot more to say. So uh, the first film I'll talk about is called Field Resistance by Emily Drummer. Shot on 16mm, it is a uh, documentary science fiction hybrid which investigates environmental devastation in the state of Iowa. Perfectly described by Jenna Roberts for the London Short Film Festival, She uh, describes Field Resistance as both a wordless B-movie thriller and filmic speculation on climate destruction. Emily Drummer's high-concept compositions, uncanny recyclings of science fiction motif, feel heavy with the menace of human meddling, hands poised to fuss at peripheries, breaths weighted through respirators lowering throughout, but the film's organic matter, a thriving plant life, exists between and beyond each of these interventions, proposing the order and inevitability of a post-human future. So it's a deftly weaved narrative that skillfully positions itself at this intersection between technology, humans and nature. The footage is collected from disparate locations that sort of embody this such as a university herbarium, sinkholes inhabited by primordial flora and fauna, a telecommunications tower, a decaying grain silo, among many others. The opening shot alone, which is a computer-rendered dissection of a digitised plant, acts as a very simple but also very clever distillation and jumping-off point for the film's ideas surrounding ecological disaster. How the power and control which humans, and by extension technology, force onto nature is so very unnatural. And the film proceeds to show us the very real present consequences and envisions potentially unseen ones too. So moving 
into the US Department of Agriculture Laboratory for the Study of Plants, we see trees and flowers cut and withered behind plastic tents. Disembodied hands investigate specimens studying the contents under a microscope. More plants under ultraviolet light being sprayed with chemicals. As Jenna Roberts describes, the atmosphere is heavy with the menace of human meddling. We're constantly attuned to the fact that more dangers, chemicals and menacing hands are lurking beyond the frame. This is when the film suddenly baits and switches to its more speculative sci-fi ecological horror territory, which is reminiscent of uh, films like Phase 4 and The Hellstrom Chronicle, which are both excellent, but shot through with a quiet ambience of a a picture pong verathical film. So afterwards we, we, we see the humans retreat underground, basically, and after the plants have incited an uprising, finally tired of being choked in plastic and burnt and sprayed, and as the humans search for refuge in the darkness, the cinematography is also confined to these tiny slivers and beams of light, extreme close-ups revealing lichens and fungi, so the humans are essentially gone, they're obscured and they're overshadowed. And overall, so drummer creates a really calm, mediative, but ultimately terrifying existential document that serves as a call to climate awareness and engagement. It's a really interesting and profound little film. The 16mm feels very conscious, not just as an aesthetic choice, adding to the lo-fi, semi-B-movie vibes, but also enhances this organic material focus of the images and inherently sort of juxtaposes it with the actual chemical film process, essentially. So yeah, that's the first film. So moving on, second film that I really enjoyed was British drama called Returning, written and directed by Lucy Bridger. It's about a retired teacher, played fantastically by a really reserved Neve Cushack, whose um, husband goes away for a business or teaching trip in, in the midst of what we might call a catalytic heatwave, which um, brings forth the gardener, played by Simon Shepard in Bait, so had to shout out bait there, Mark Jenkins, and uh, some potentially repressed emotions of our female protagonist, who clearly desires this man and is having sexual fantasies about him and is attracted to him, and where, with her husband gone, there are possibilities for anything to happen. It's a really quiet and understated film. It reminded me a lot of Andrew Hayes' 45 Years, and uh, Kleber Mendoza Fio's Aquarius, I think mostly because of the honest depiction of middle-aged women's sexuality and desires. Also reminded me of like Joanna Hogg's work. Someone on Letterboxd called Ziggy Zaggy described it as a very British aesthetic, essentially a quiet passion flowing beneath the calm surface. It's exactly that, but it's always on the edge of almost exploding. It's like, it's a very sultry and tactile film. You can feel the sweat and the sexual frustrations and the regret and the yearning. And it comes so close, but just like the character of the story, everything is kept 
tight and bottled inside, and essentially the plans for a potential sexual encounter are foiled at the last second, and she has to return to her mild-mannered boredom, and the film leaves us very unsatisfied, just as the main character is, and I think that's partly why it's brilliant, because every thought and feeling left unsaid is perfectly expressed through the images, the relaxed, natural flow of the edit and the writing and the structure. And I mean, so the lighting and the compositions are stunning, particularly after such an arduous winter being locked indoors and cold. The cinematography, which is by Nick Morris, captures the summer and its vibrant nature and the sticky heat like it was a Monet painting, like it's, it's stunning. Even the camera feels appropriately fatigued by the heat and the weight of all the frustration. Just hovering and very mannered, it either sits still or seemingly in no rush to move, it is like it gently pushes and pulls back and forth. So the content and form are really cohesively linked to tell the story, and that's something that's quite rare, particularly in such a short film as well. Finally, uh, I'll talk about a film called Bad Mood by Larisse Giuseppe Nesse, who's an Italian director. It's imagined through blunt, cubic and almost noir-like animation. It features a young narrator who recounts the struggles of their mother's work as a caregiver for the elderly. It has a sort of Ouroboros-like narrative that navigates capitalism, servitude, death and depression through this cyclical repeating of images which fade and resurface. So there's a TV screen, a cityscape, an opening elevator, a moonlit floor of an apartment where a patient is on their deathbed with the carer by their side, the mother's face turning side to side, a stove with a coffee pot and a boiling stew, as well as a ticking clock, which is this denotation of the mother's life and the narrator who slowly ages from a child to a teen then a young adult are slowly ticking away their memories and futures are consigned to these repeated homogenous and dissolving images just as each new client or patient passes on to death it's like it's a rather bleak film but also one that i think is filled with a lot of empathy and quiet human endeavour and bravery. It had a really strange sort of personal effect on me. I think the lino cut animation and this VHS sort of early video aesthetic conjure a really potent sense of nostalgia of being young and watching cartoons and adverts on TV or raiding my dad's VHS collection. I think a few things that it brought to my mind were like the snowman with you know the Raymond Briggs snowman hand-drawn thing uh like BBC and Channel 4 idents like in between programming their little idents and then Smart the art show on CBBC and also Akira weirdly I don't I don't know why but it uh, also really captures this period of your life where you become more emotionally aware of your parents and comprehend their adult life and their joys and their pains as well as this sort of silent tension that you feel after an argument has settled or you come to some shattering realization there's a lot going on both politically and emotionally in this short and yeah 
I think I'd need to see it again to get more from it, but I really loved it. So lastly, I'm just going to give a shout out as well to two other films, Beyond Noah by Patrick Smith, which is like a wonderful little formal exercise in editing rhythm, but also an experimental and purely visual anthropological and historical study of masks and also somehow it manages to be a very funny and biting modern social satire in a way and then finally Codename Nagasaki which is by Frederick S. Hanna and Marius Lundi which is a documentary about finding Marius's long-lost Japanese mother and these two friends who met through filmmaking really show their passion and innovation with these genre pastiche elements of like noir samurai and horror films that are used not just for style, they're really expressive and provide a psychological mirror to the personal story that really add to your sort of emotional response as well as just being really ridiculously fun and perfectly crafted and like scarily better than most genre homages that you see that are feature length films. So yeah, that's um, that's my lot. Um, thanks again for having me on. Speak to you soon. Bye. Thank you for that, Max. Um, that is the sort of film criticism that we love. Very well informed, passionate, a little bit poetic too. Excellent stuff. Jack and Jack, did you catch any of the films that Max mentioned there? Yes. Yes. Excellent. So... Mr. Davidson, you caught the um, Bad Mood movie? Yes. Yes, I did. Um, Bad Mood was quite interesting. It was actually how I was saying I caught some near the end. That mm-hmm. was one I'd kind of like just glossed over. I thought it was an interesting concept, but I thought it might be quite um, emotional. Mm-hmm. Um, so like my both my granddad and my mom um, have needed carers coming into our house. So this was something that I'm like pretty familiar with. Mm-hmm. And actually, I do think that, as Max was saying, like that, the approach that they do to it is really sort of how it's like something you don't think about is that people are essentially paid to go and basically watch people die. And that the people that they're looking after are a, a commodity to that company. And it's this whole thing of time passing, but it's almost like everything's changing for, for the caring character, like the carer, but that nothing changes at all just a different person and it puts her in a bad mood which is like a motif that's really hammered home Mm -hmm. so yeah i've really appreciated the angle on that just taking something normal and just saying like oh this is like something no one thinks about now look at it and think about it and think about it some more and it really draws the bit of sweetness out of it that Mm -hmm. that she's a companion for these characters but also that how sad that they're alone but they're not alone but she's alone too you know it's like all of these thoughts so I really did appreciate the way that it made me think. Um, I did like the style as well. Mm-hmm. The, the style was kind of mind-bogglingly good. It's almost like on a... It looks like a chalkboard in a way, doesn't it? But again, yeah. sort of like a, like footage of a chalkboard that's been taped. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. very strange. Yeah, so I think it did have this like worldly sense to it where I, I was really immersed. And I'm glad that I did catch it because, again, it's something that I might, maybe not would have clicked on, but actually kind of really related to it Mm -hmm. very nice we also caught returning of course because that was on in the london shorts film festival so this is me and mr keating we both like that one a lot if you listen to the first part of our uh, london shorts film festival episode you'll hear our review of that 
And I think Max just kind of blew us out of the water with his. <laughs> I didn't even think of the comparison to Aquarius, and I love Aquarius. Like Clever Mendonça Filho is one of my favorite working filmmakers. Between that, Neighbor and Sounds, Baccarat as well. He's just like on a winning streak at the minute that nobody else has really come close to. So, um, yeah, check out all those films that I just mentioned. And of course, I think Lucy Bridges going on to probably do some excellent things because the the sensitivity and the and the sensuality mm-hmm. of the filmmaking there is quite amazing, really. I need to watch her first short because I've heard that's just as good as mm-hmm. Returning was. Returning was fantastic. That was one of my favourites of the whole festival. I think it might have really, yeah, of wow. the London Short Film Festival. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just a nice. I don't know, it was such a great quiet drama mm-hmm. so much was said in like the acting i think the performance was incredible mm-hmm. uh, um i feel like max has said it better than i possibly could now <laughs> yeah i mean we might as well just go home now you know just, yeah. just to wrap up the episode guys i mean actually he has mercifully left a lot of things for us to talk about he as has. well that we all watch together um yes, including twenty four thousand four hundred eighty three dreams of death which we will get on to in a little bit and also continue with with our interview with Chris Peters coming up soon, wow. if you can believe it. So there's a little announcement for you guys. So that'll probably be episode uh, five of Above the Line, I guess. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, stay tuned for that one. Um, we are going to jump into our schedule now. The way I've written it down here is that we're going to start with the feature films that we watched. You know, there's a little bit of crossover between the two. So the first one, well, actually, let's let's hesitate to call this a feature, but it was Taipei Suicide Story. Now we we all watched this one, didn't mm-hmm. we? All three of us. Yes. Fantastic. Who wants to start? I, I probably have the the least technical thing to say about it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that works. I come in with just like a broad thing, and then you guys blow it out the water. <laughs> no, come on. Your your review of bad mood there. Brought a tear to me, I do. <laughs> so yeah, um, you know, one of my favorite films is Lost in Translation. Mm-hmm. And this is like, oh, like Lost in Translation, but infinitely more morbid. <laughs> um, how sort of two souls can kind of collide in a moment of, of crisis and, mm-hmm. and morbidity. And uh, yeah, again, this is another kind of thing that is like, you know, uh, the, the approach to it, it's, it's so... It, it, I, the, the, ah, I've lost my train of thought. But no, 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 you know you're doing I mean? so well. I'm, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I guess it's it's hard to describe it in that way. Like, it is, I guess, super meditative. Mm-hmm. Um, you Should we describe what like, it's about first before we? Oh yeah. Oh god. Sorry. Yeah, sorry I'm just <laughs> rushing in. <laughs> no, no. I can I can tell that you loved it though. Yeah. Um. No, I was just gonna say because like I think the the, the setup is quite a, a specific mm-hmm. one. Yeah, it's that a, is key. I mean, you can basically tell what the film is about from the title, Taipei yes. Suicide Story. It follows um, a bunch of characters in a suicide hotel in Taipei. Now, I don't think that this is a real thing, right? I Googled it because that's how convincing the film mm, was to me. Exactly. I, I Googled it. I couldn't find anything. Right. Um, Thank goodness. Yeah. Yeah, thank goodness. Yeah, so basically it's a hotel where people stay for one night and the hotel supplies them with the means to kill themselves. And, you know, you can basically order this, like, room service. So you can order razor blades up to your room like you would order a burger. Um, so it's it's that kind of, like, very deadpan bleakness that 
just kind of takes you aback immediately and you're like wow okay mm-hmm. so this is almost like a like a yogas lanthimos sort of situation you can imagine mm-hmm. the characters from the lobster just you know <laughs> uh just down the street in their own hotel <laughs> um but yeah, so it, it basically follows the, the concierge, the male concierge, and a female guest who um, has been staying in the hotel for a week, which is a big mm-hmm. no-no, because if mm-hmm. you stay in the hotel for longer than one night, then that must mean that you no longer want to kill yourself. And she's kind of still making up her mind. <laughs> yeah. So um, it basically follows their love story in a very short 45-minute runtime, which I think is honestly a perfect length for it i think mm-hmm. you know with it with a concept this strong it would be tempting to say you know this should be a feature film but i think mm-hmm. the the brevity and the way that this film wraps itself up almost immediately it just tells you everything that you need to know about the world and, and their relationship which is fantastic really i mean it kind of feels like a feature that's how i felt when i was watching it mm-hmm. in that 45 minutes it felt like um it felt like it really took the story where it needed to go it did i didn't it didn't end and I didn't feel like it needed more, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean? And it, it, I feel like if you explain the concept of the film to someone, they'd be forgiven for thinking it could be like an exploitative film. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really not. I think that's why I, I love this one. This one might have been one of my favourites out of the very short list I saw. Um, but Top five at least. It, yeah, top, <laughs> top, five. top five out of seven. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it... Um, yeah, it really treats the characters with respect and treats the subject with respect without actually being like overly preachy about, you know, a lot of stories that deal with this subject matter, they come off as preachy and like they can just preach at you like, oh my God, life is so precious. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the message is so like in your face. And I don't feel like this film did that at all. It was quite subdued and it really it tried to help you understand this woman who is contemplating taking a life and I guess it gave you the other side as well like the the concierge was contemplating his job position mm-hmm. um the ethics it, and the morality of, yeah. of the way that he earns a pretty paltry living really exactly <laughs> yeah it, it it poses like bigger que- uh, questions on like um I don't know, ethics of euthanasia and stuff, but like taking it further than that, like, you know, euthanizing because depression and stuff like that, obviously mm. that's basically what the the hotel is. And it's, yeah, it's a very heavy film and um, not a cheery start to our podcast, but... <laughs> no, no, but it's a, it's a better euthanasia film than Me Before You. So yeah. There we go. That's something there you least, go. isn't it? Yeah, yeah there you go. Um, yeah, I, there was a lot of dramatic irony in it as well. I mm-hmm. thought um, really clever, just little bits of dialogue. Like, did you guys pick up on um, when they're in the shop together and he's the, the concierge is there like, oh, don't buy noodles. They're bad for you. And she's literally staying at his suicide hotel. <laughs> he's like, they're because bad he for your wants health. her to not commit suicide. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. I, I just kind of spelled that out there. But yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's, I I loved that. Sorry, I went on a bit of rant there. No, no, just, <laughs> that, that's the type of enthusiasm that we want. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. any more thoughts, Mister Davidson? Uh, yeah, sorry, for sorry I know, I, I know, I cut you off initially. But... <laughs> no, it's all good. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's it's like the bit of sweetness of it all, isn't it? This this mel- melancholic blend that is life, really. So, 
that I think that was what I appreciated the most. It was like in times of crisis, you know, mm-hmm. it's this just this blur. You could meet somebody and and feel something, and maybe that's all they needed. But was it enough? And I think it's really a thing about loneliness, really, and isolation, mm-hmm. and even around people, you're you're still alone. Um, mm-hmm. And I just, yeah, you you totally hit the nail on the head there. Like forty five minutes, I thought it was seventy plus minutes. <laughs> So the amount of world building and character that they pump into that, and it's not like it rushes through it either. No, it's very mm-hmm. meditatively really, based. Yeah. Yeah. Meditative, yeah, exactly. And I really like that. It's almost like we're stuck in one place the way they are, mm-hmm. and it's almost mm-hmm. reflective of a headspace. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's almost like, boom, here you are at this crossroad, and then, you know, it's it. Absolutely. That's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Same, and am i remembering correctly it felt almost boxy a lot of the shots in a way like a room i don't know i don't know if that's my head thinking about it like that but i think it was quite shapely like you know mm-hmm. corridors through a door yeah yeah all um, oh, right i know what you mean sorry you know, I, th- I thought you yeah. meant an aspect ratio choice yeah no yeah. no no um just yeah. like this general feeling of like rigidity or mm-hmm. order um that even mm-hmm. something as emotional as a suicide is something that you book in and arrange and pay for it's like god but it is something that if there was a demand for that you can imagine like a a, a capitalist thing of that mm-hmm. actually being profitable mm-hmm. and say mm-hmm. well let's run it's like you know, a so... very low-key black mirror yes very, yeah. i mean very the fact key. i had to look it up to see if it was real or not yeah is, um speaks volumes to yes. the yeah. message it's sending <laughs> that like how far away we are from it yeah do you know what i mean mm-hmm. like yeah, I know what you mean, though, with the framing. Everything's quite, like, static, if mm-hmm. I remember right. Like, really static shots. It just lets the environment breathe as well. And, yeah, I yeah. can't actually remember any camera movements in that movie. No. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm sure there is, but there probably I can't is. remember it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, that's a that's a really great movie. And, of, of course, 45 minutes. You have no excuse not to watch it. <laughs> no, absolutely. <laughs> what we got next on the roster? Codename Nagasaki. Which, I think, Mr. Davidson over here said was his joint favourite documentary of all time. Bold words, sir. Do you want to tell Bold me words. why that is? Are you, do you want to introduce it as the... Um, well, I mean, Max kind of already talked <laughs> okay. about it a little bit there, didn't he? So, but yeah, basically it's, it's a Norwegian um, documentary drama hybrid, let's say. Or more mm-hmm. documentary that uses sort of um, stylistics of drama. Yes. Um, okay. Brilliant. It's about a um, Japanese uh, Norwegian young man called uh, Marius Lund. Uh, his mother is Japanese. His dad is Norwegian. Um, he grew up for the first few years of his life in Japan before the family emigrated to Norway. And from there, his mother left quite early in his life and never came back cut off all contact and uh, one day he basically decides to go and seek her out in japan um, and it's just basically this uh, how he prepares with his friend is it frederick yeah yeah uh, who's the director of the film to go over to japan and not exactly confront his mother but try to reconnect with her and it's bit yeah Tell me why it's good, Mr. Davidson. <laughs> well, so my other, I feel like I should preface what my other favorite documentary sure. is, which is Bombay Beach by Alma Harrell. And to me, seeing that and that blend of taking something that exists as a story and imbuing it with this 
art is if you take the best parts of fiction and documentary and say we're going to do something just deeper than b-roll and um, something that actually speaks to who the character is or the situation they're in mm-hmm. um so that's like this style of documentary that i just think can't be touched like it's it's incredible um and i don't know of that many films that do it as well as bombay beach so that's been sitting up there and codename nagasaki really came close for me mm-hmm. um I just it is just imbued with the, this this love of filmmaking and I don't know if it's just because I'm a filmmaker or what but I just connected instantly it felt like a couple of kids got grabbed their dad's camera and started mocking up things like that they'd seen mm-hmm. like from a noir to like a, you know a bit of a grungy horror like a Japanese you know aesthetic like a Kurosawa movie yes yeah. exactly for even to samurais and it's all reflective mm-hmm. though of, of his culture or rather amalgamation of culture mm-hmm. he's, he's neither japanese nor norwegian he he doesn't you know he's this creative filmmaker and you know how hard it is to actually identify who you are or all those little parts that make up you um so i love that and especially as throughout the film the genre reflects his own opinion of himself or his own identity as it shifts yeah so you might think of his strong heritage of samurai films but then turn more into like private eye as he's actually digging up all of this information about his mother and trying to meet her mm-hmm. and even to throw in animation where they weren't allowed to film in the room they animate it just that level of there's there's roadblocks but they're not just gonna like walk around them they're gonna jump over them and do something unique as well yeah i don't know man it just was like magic I mean, even to the point where... To that's the word for it, I think. Yeah, magic. Yeah. Magic, movie magic. And mm-hmm. that's like, you don't find that often. You know, something where you're like, this is just, whoa. <laughs> you know, like yeah. um, there was as well a scene that I, I thought was brilliant was the fact that they hired like a crew and uh, got an actress to pretend to be his mother. And like the way that that, that felt, you know, like you're practicing speaking to your own mother. And, and you know, I've, I've seen some thoughts on it where people say they couldn't connect with it mm-hmm. um and what is a really interesting comparison is i actually saw a documentary about two filmmaker friends tracking down it was called missing mom um and it was two american filmmakers and i don't remember much about that at all apart from that so i've already seen the story essentially um mm-hmm. you know personal documentary by two filmmakers but the difference here was just all of that extra stuff that they they put on top of it but i think that could just appeal to my my personal taste as well as this is you know I, I that's don't not think... just your personal yeah. taste though i think there is literally something for everybody in this movie yeah because yeah. it, it cycles through so many stylistic modes but doesn't mm-hmm. sort of stay in any one of them for too long as to become like yeah. trite or annoying it just and it absolutely nails the aesthetic like there's a bit mm. where he turns into a um like a no demon and i know we're going to get on to no as we, as as we go on like the masks and whatnot but um yeah very accomplished filmmaking by a couple of film bros essentially and that's what we are isn't it this is a, this is a film bro <laughs> podcast right so you know they're the boys <laughs> made by film bros for film, <laughs> for bros. film bros. <laughs> <laughs> and by above the line and canlan bell yeah tm <laughs> sorry jack you were you were gonna say there uh, yeah, yeah, um, but I just feel that they come across really well, and mm-hmm. that um, that it because it's so personal, it's just something that kind of has to be told, and and to be told in that way, the best way to tell it, like you say, the different genres. Not only do they fit, 
both thematically and they make sense. They're not just gimmicky. That they actually more than smash it. Like the shots yeah. are look like they're pulled straight out of a film of the genre that they're imitating. And it's only it's just a documentary. Mm-hmm. So to put that level of craft in was like really something special as well. Yeah, I really hope this one sees a wider release as well. Really... Yeah, because I really want to watch it because I didn't get a chance to see oh. it. Oh. I was just about to ask you, did you get a chance to? But but then I've realised looking at the list here, it's like, oh no, so yeah, it's David one of the ones seen I didn't that get one, to. Keating seen the other, right? Yeah, <laughs> alas. But yeah, I really hope that sounds. It sounds incredible. Yeah, like it sounds like it's paying homage to like so many different genres and stuff like that. It sounds yeah. I really hope that gets a wider release so I can yeah. check it out. That'd be nice. Number three on our list here is a proper feature film this time. This one is called Isaac. It is a Lithuanian film by Jurgis. Oh, no. You know what? I have a friend from Lithuania, and I actually asked her, how do I pronounce this name earlier? And she sent me a message, and I was just like, right, great, thanks. And I just completely forgot. So I'm going to play what she sent me, and then hang on. Jurgis Matulavichus. Jurgis Matulavichus. There we go. Beautiful. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you very much. Um, Yes, it is a movie that starts off in World War II, 1941, Lithuania, in the middle of a pogrom. So basically a massacre of Jewish people in um, a town, in an uprising. Um, During this scene, which is basically filmed in this crazily, ambitiously long take, like Mm. almost that's something that... Emmanuel Lebesky would try to pull off in The Revenant. Um, during this massacre, uh, our protagonist, uh, Andreas, he kills um, a Jew called Isaac and basically runs away, and that is all that we see. It's this very chaotic sequence of um, mud, blood, violence, uh, torment, hate. It's a pretty rough opening scene. But then you flash forward about... 10 years or so um and what happens next (laughs) (laughs) so yeah you take over jack (laughs) i'll take over (laughs) (laughs) so however many years later over a decade later Mm -hmm. um a filmmaker comes back to um lithuania isn't it yes yeah lithuania from america to produce his new film which is based on the massacre we had just seen at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And he seems to have knowledge, like almost insider knowledge to how the massacre played out uh, due to his, like his script is so ridiculously accurate. Like beat for beat, you had to have been yeah. there in order to... You had to have been yeah. there. That it's suspicious and he starts getting investigated by the KGB. And it's a bit of a, a moral dilemma sort of film, yeah, uh, to say the least. Um, and it calls into question a lot of uh, survivor's guilt and... Um, like the role the of, of art as well. Exactly, in, in, yeah. Uh, portraying trauma, um, particularly that of, of Jewish people. Exactly. Is it exploitative yeah. to be making movies about this? Yeah, it's it's really interesting, actually. I yeah, think. it's a fascinating concept. Especially, I was really with it for the first half as well. These l- really long takes, uh, kind of mind-blowing. <laughs> yeah. In two-thirds of it is in black and white and the middle section's in, in colour. Yeah, it, yeah, it's split into three. But yeah, these really, really long takes are just incredible. They just, it makes the movie 
I don't know, you're just sort of gliding with them because a lot of the characters are just walking about all over the place and you almost feel like you're another person walking with them at times. It's, yeah, really interesting. Yeah. Uh, did you get to watch this, Davidson? No, I actually haven't seen that one. Um, oh. But it sounds really interesting, oh, especially no. like using see, black and white in colour in, in it for effect because that's, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, was, it was interesting. I can't say I fully understood the point of the, the, the different colours like in terms of the story but i'm sure mm-hmm. there was one uh, maybe it would require a rewatch but it was definitely interesting and I, I admire the ambition of this filmmaker i do think like it's a little bit rough around the edges would you agree simon yeah um, i'd agree uh, i think it's very difficult to pinpoint stylistically what it's doing and why mm-hmm. um yeah but it's in an age of very flashy filmmaking like stuff like The Revenant, for example, which is a film that I'm very conflicted on. Um, I think it's more thoughtful than your average one. It's mm-hmm. got an amazing concept, and I think that's what kind of got me interested from beginning to end. But yeah, like I say, it is a lot to stuff into about, I think it's only about 104 minutes. Yeah. Um, it's it's a, it's an interesting film, I'd say that. It smells of the sort of thing that will go to movie one day. <laughs> yeah, you know? definitely. So, yeah. Uh, and I'm I'm interested to see what he does next because I feel like very occasionally the long shots would be to a detriment. So it would randomly cut for almost very little reason, seemingly. And then all of a sudden, like the 180 degree rule would have been broken. Yeah, and stuff no, like that's that. right. Yeah, I did forget about that a little bit. It it felt like a film that was longer once than it originally is. Yeah, now, you know what I mean. Uh-huh. I think you could feasibly make 130, 140 minute sort of epic drama out of it and it would benefit from it because it would just have more time to breathe. Um, mm-hmm. Like honestly, yeah. in, in an age of films that need more time to breathe, <coughs> Justice League, <coughs> thank you, I was Snyder. about to say, <laughs> um, release the Isaac cut. <laughs> <laughs> very good. <laughs> um, yeah, so a very interesting concept, I think quite an educational one as well i've actually been watching a lot of films recently of like you know eastern european countries about uh, cultural chapters that i just had absolutely no idea about i watched Mm -hmm. a romanian film called uppercase print the other day which i was just like this is bonkers and i'm glad that this film's been able to educate my small newcastle based brain uh (laughs) about this uh very fraught period of history so yeah quite an educational one too Absolutely. What else we got? Oh, it's the big one, lads. I thought so. <laughs> what we have here is 24,483 Dreams of Death by the esteemed Chris Peters, who has already leaped up the list of my favourite living filmmakers. <laughs> um, from, from two shorts. From two short films that technically he didn't really even direct no of course he did of course he did what am i talking about but no it's it's basically where he's uh taught an ai to watch uh two films so first of all with vertigo ai taught it to watch alfred hitchcock's vertigo 20 times in a row and then he taught an ai to watch black sunday by mario bava and um i'm gonna read you out the opening title card to the film because this is probably going to explain it better than i ever could so This film is a record of the machine's neural network forming in real time, not footage in the traditional sense of photographed scenes, but footage of the internal experience of a new intelligence learning about our world for the first time. 
Unfortunately, to create the footage, it was necessary to sequentially create 24,483 neural networks or miniature brains and then, after they had served their purpose, immediately destroy them. To complete the experiment, a separate AI was used to write the poetry heard in the narration. In a single 18-hour period, the machine wrote 1,623,811 words of poetry, nearly 100 books worth. Surprisingly, much of it was on the subject of death and loss. Why did the machine write so many death-themed poems? It is likely the machine was simply creating a pastiche of the 19th century poetry it had read during training. It is frankly impossible that the machine was referring to the destruction of the 24,483 neural networks used to create this film. Wow. <laughs> eh? yeah. I've it's, also written uh... a couple of notes here as well. Sorry, just before you jump into your thing. Mr. Keating, um, mm-hmm. these are like the, the, the very scattered thoughts that I had. And when we actually do get to interview Chris Peters, I will think mm-hmm. about this a little bit more. So basically what I've written in my notebook was more poetic and eerie than Vertigo AI. The context of morbid poetry aligned with a beautifully expressionistic gothic work of visual art shows our strange propensity towards death reflected back at us. Does it question the innate function of horror movies on the human psyche? If our dark and disturbing fantasies are attempted to be rationalised by a being that has its basis grown from logic and has grown beyond that now, what is it saying in reply? What do you think it's saying in reply, Mr Keating? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's an easy question. (laughs) Liar. (laughs) No, this film asks, like took the concepts of vertigo ai which we talked about on our last podcast yep and you made me you made my brain explode with thoughts <laughs> afterwards i've been thinking about it a lot since and this one took that concept and ran with it so much further like you said this one is so much darker and this one really more so than the vertigo one i think makes you question almost the morality of what you're doing like of like almost creating is it life you know and then destroying the life creating something only to kill it creating something only for it to make something as beautiful as this film Mm -hmm. and then destroy it afterwards almost add it's almost just like it's such like concept art it's almost like transcends film do you know Mm -hmm. what i mean yep this is bigger than film um it's not, you don't sit down and watch this for entertainment. This is like something that belongs in a yourself. museum. Yeah. <laughs> well, it is entertaining, but like, you know, <laughs> it's not the Snyder Cut. <laughs> it's shorter but, than the Snyder Cut. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is something that like you could, I, I would see it at a museum and think, wow, that's amazing. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like, it's probably oh, I, th- I think, I think it's worthy. beyond museum art for me. Yeah. Because that's uh-huh. normally the sort of thing that I roll my eyes at, in a way. It's, <laughs> it's, it's something that I kind of do struggle with. Um, but that's probably just me, because, you know what, I like the Snyder Cut, so... Um... <laughs> <laughs> Keeping its way in here. Uh, it, <laughs> maybe, maybe that's Honestly, another episode's worth. <laughs> I've, I've spent all day watching it, pretty much, from about 9am this morning until about 5 o'clock, all the way through. I had to sort of go and do chores and do a bit of gardening, composting and that sort of thing, <laughs> but... You know, it, it it did literally eat up like my whole day. I'm about halfway through, uh, 
for the, for those listening, we are recording on the day of its release. Yeah, so. of course, because <laughs> we're that hyped, you know. Yeah. <laughs> And I'm sure Chris Peters, if he hears this, will be thrilled that we're talking about the Snyder Cut in, <laughs> in the, the middle of his movie. movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, no, but you think about the Snyder Cut in, in terms of, um, you know, like a like a filmmaker who has actively gone out to recreate his own vision, right? That's mm-hmm. a pure creative form. Mm-hmm. What Vertigo Art, that sorry, uh, what twenty four thousand four hundred eighty three Dreams of Death is doing is something completely different. It's letting something create something in order to destroy it, and then turning it back into a very strange, beautiful horror movie. Again, I will be able to talk about this so much more eloquently when I've sat down and and really, really thought about it again. But you were talking about uh, creating only to destroy right Mm -hmm. isn't that what every single horror film does Mm -hmm. in a way well you know all the all the sort of friday the 13th of this world but even then if you if you cycle back to stuff like you know 1959 black sunday came out that was giving you um, a bunch of characters in a gothic scenario to have them destroyed by a witch who Mm. has uh, in turn been destroyed twice over by mm. this uh, this mask that's been nailed into her face. Like if you haven't seen Black Sunday, it's it's a pretty nasty little movie for its time. It's it's basically reflecting back the function of horror films, but without the the carnal uh, stuff that makes it tick. And you know that like loads of teenagers will go on dates to see because you know they can and grab their partner or whatever. But um, <laughs> yeah, again another movie that mulches up the meaning and narrative of cinema spits it back out and finds a, a truth you know yeah yeah absolutely and and it's obsessed with barbara Steele. yeah no <laughs> it's got her face. yeah <laughs> uh, she's on it a lot her face is like melted and hazy and oh, yeah. less so than jimmy stewart's was in, less so uh, in, yeah in it's a lot less AI. melty this one a lot more hazy almost. yes like Maybe that's to do the with film. the with the black and white photography rather than you know the mm. the, the popping colours of uh, Vertigo or anything. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, because ver- the Vertigo one it looked good melting, and I don't feel like this one needs to melt. Do you know what I mean? This yeah. one almost it's almost like black and white TV static at times. Yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, it's it's just constantly morphing and changing, and oh yeah, and. You, I want these to get wider releases as well because mm-hmm. I want to show my family them, you know. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and hopefully we'll help out with our, uh, you know, podcast that will surely be listened to by, by millions of people next episode. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Exactly. Fingers crossed. <laughs> so, yes, more on that in the next episode, no doubt. Um, number five on our list you're going to love this one, Mr. Keating. Oh, my God. Progressive touch. Hell, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Do you want to pitch this one? Okay. Right. Let's go. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Where to start with this one? Sorry. This one is a... <sighs> Hold on. Right. Let me gather my thoughts. This one is... It's a film depicting three couples dancing. Um, dancing, funny. one dancing, uh, one male female, one male male, and one female female. Um, each one they are dancing, but 
the whole concept of this dance is to see whether you can have sex to um, a regular beat like the beat is really um, arrhythmic yeah that's the word i was looking for yes arrhythmic um and there it is unsimulated sex on screen for our about pleasure. 15 minutes something yeah, like that. about 15 minutes yeah but basically played for slapstick as well yeah yeah kind oh. of like i'm not ashamed to admit this weirdly erotic but also uh, completely extravagant and like just totally stupid silly nonsense of um all the different positions that you could feasibly sync up with of, um yeah yeah with like metal and uh trap music and stuff and um just all shot and a very uh neon way oh, god neon way what am i talking about it's, but it's uh, impossible to describe, right? Yeah, I know. It takes <laughs> this concept of can you have sex to an irregular beat and then runs with it in every direction that oh. you could possibly think of. Um, you've got uh, singing. They make, uh, <laughs> they make a urethra sing down the mic. Um, extreme close-up. Extreme close-up. Mm-hmm. Um, uh it is isn't helicopter um oral sex i guess um <laughs> that was fantastic that might be my favorite moment not gonna lie <laughs> yeah <laughs> i guess so um if if you can rank them from you know <laughs> one to ten. Oh, i can oh, oh I yeah can. <laughs> <laughs> well actually you saw this one um like further back in time than i did because this was one that you caught during the london shorts film festival right I did. I didn't get a chance to talk about it on that podcast. What a shame. But thank the Lord we can talk about it now in all its (laughs) splendor because it is quite something. Quite stunning. Um, It's like Gaspar Noé. Like, it's what he dreams of making. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's Gaspar Noé with a sense of humour. That's really good. Yeah. Um, It's like love, but not boring. Yeah. 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 Is that all we have to say on that one? Uh, oh, I am going to quote Max Sargent on this one. I yeah. saw his review. Mm-hmm. Uh, his review is fantastic. It just said, slapstick and tickle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I remember liking that one. Yes, well yeah. well done, Max. S- stealing the show as we're, as we're drawing to a close as well. Well done. Yeah, <laughs> Part two. Coming soon. Bye for now.